0: This week on the Science of Politics, How Trump is Disrupting Refugee Policy. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The Trump administration has drastically reduced refugee resettlement while turning away asylum seekers. While immigration has long been contentious, the U.S. used to have a bipartisan consensus on accepting refugees. So what's the basis of that consensus and what went wrong? Today I talk with Rebecca Hamlin of the University of Massachusetts about her book, Let Me Be a Refugee, and her book in development, Crossing. She finds that U.S. refugee policy is less insulated from political pressure than Canada's, opening it to Trump influence. But our attempts to cleanly separate refugees from other migrants are too binary, hampering the debate. But I also talked to Idian Salehin of the University of North Texas about his Niskanen report, The Strategic Case for Refugee Resettlement. He finds that refugee experts widely agree on the benefits of the resettlement program, finding Trump's latest move a dangerous aberration based on its conflation with the wider immigration debate. They both were motivated to apply research to the current debate. For Hamlin, it was that academics and advocates assume a divide that isn't clear.
1: I've been frustrated with how the academic study of border crossing gets siloed into two pretty separate arenas, the migration studies, literature, and re- refugee studies. And I personally think we miss an awful lot by not being more closely in conversation across those two areas, especially when we're thinking about people whose categorization is is unclear and ambiguous. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me to study refugees and other migrants separately. I've also been disturbed, as I mentioned a minute ago, by the way that people in organizations who ostensibly want to help vulnerable people end up talking about Border crossing, in particular, some refugee advocacy organizations, including the UN, often, to my mind, throw other border crossers under the bus in the process of protecting the people that they believe they're mandated to help by emphasizing the particularity of the refugee experience in order to help some but not all people. So, yes, the intensity of the current debate has made me more inspired <laughs> to get the argument out there, but it's been going on for a while and it, it, it's particularly come to a head in the way that, that I've been observing public debate for probably about five years.
0: For Salayan, it was a return to prior
2: research based on the rise
0: of a previously
2: apolitical issue. I kind of came back to my roots. A long time ago, I did an undergraduate thesis, it was an honors thesis, looking at U.S. and Canadian refugee and asylum policy and the historical trajectory of it and compliance with international law. And in graduate school, my interests became much more global. So, you know, I did a series of articles on the international implications of refugee flows, you know, that's consequences for regional instability and, and security problems and, and things of that sort. Um, it was mostly quantitative work that had a global cross-national perspective. And refugee policy you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of academic research or a lot of interest in refugee policy because refugee policy for years has almost been an afterthought in the overall immigration debate. You know, members of Congress debate, border enforcement debate, economic migration, the, you know, who should get in, right? These are hot political issues and there's been more academic research on those matters and less so on the refugee admissions program because everyone just kind of agreed that this was a good policy and there really wasn't a there there. And that really changed with this administration. The administration very robustly started attacking the refugee admissions program. And for me as an academic researcher, you know, I, I couldn't sit on the sidelines and watch a program that had benefited so many millions of people, A, fall into disrepute because the president was questioning the motives of, of refugees and questioning their their legitimacy, and also significantly cutting the numbers.
0: U.S. refugee policy was born of the Cold War, and Hamlin says it's been difficult for advocates to work within the refugee definition chosen for political persecution.
1: The definition of a refugee was written in its current form in international law in 1951 in the Refugee Convention. and It was basically written by the victors of World War II. And in many ways, it's a Cold War relic. It conceptualizes the reasons why people flee their country in terms of ideological or uh, identity-based persecution. And it's very liberal in sort of the classical sense. It's modeled on the idea of a person in exile, a dissident. And that's sort of the, the basic textual limitation that people advocating for border crossers have to work with. And to be clear about the terminology, an asylum seeker is someone who comes directly to another country and asks to be recognized as a refugee. And that stands in sort of in contrast to the people who have been recognized overseas, either by the U.S. State Department or the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and have been given refugee status overseas and are then resettled. So I'm talking about when I when I talk about refugees, I talk about people who've been resettled from overseas and asylum seekers are the ones asking for that status right here on our on our own doorstep. But legal advocates for asylum seekers and other uh, people who view themselves as refugees have gotten have had to get very creative over the years because of the limitations of the definition that I mentioned and It's been a really interesting, there's a very rich and interesting history that I could go into about how, in general, lawyers have been pretty successful in pushing more expansive interpretations of the definition over time. And the definition has been expanded to conceptually include people seeking protection from gender-based violence, from sexuality-based violence, violence at the hands of non-state actors like gangs or rebel groups. But the interpretation of the definition still varies a lot by country, um, despite the guidance that the UNHCR has issued encouraging states to read the legal definition very broadly. And so part of what we've seen in the U.S. in the past couple of years is the Trump administration pulling way back on a lot of the uh, legal advances by using the power of the Attorney General to undo past precedent-setting decisions and issue new precedents that read the definition much more narrowly and classically in ways that make it really difficult for people coming from, for example, the Northern Triangle of Central America to make successful claims. So this is a really clear-cut example of what I talked about in my book, which is the ways in which our uninsulated system in the U.S. is really vulnerable to exclusionary politics.
0: Salehan says it started as an anti-Soviet policy and expanded in the 1980s, but retains its foreign policy role.
2: During the early part of the Cold War, really up until 1980, the United States explicitly defined a refugee as someone fleeing communist countries or countries in the Middle East. So it was very uh, clearly in our refugee definition that accepting people who were defecting from communist regimes was something that we should be doing to kind of show the world the the ills of communism and that people were voting with their feet to come to the United States. That changed, the definition changed in 1980 to bring the US definition in line with international law, with the uh, 1951 Refugee Convention. And since then we've had two different streams of entering the United States as a refugee, the asylum process where people uh, present themselves at a port of entry, and uh, claim a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country, in which case their claims are, are adjudicated here domestically. Uh, the refugee resettlement program is a bit different in that the United States actively selects refugees from abroad uh, to bring to the United States. So they could be you know, Vietnamese refugees in a camp in Malaysia, for example, and they'd be screened and processed there prior to entering the United States. During the 1980s, lot of agreement among academics that both programs did have a continued anti-communist tinge to it. Not to say that we weren't accepting refugees from a variety of countries, but we we tended to put priority on people fleeing communism. Uh, That rationale sort of obviously changed after the end of the Cold War. Although we continued, particularly through the refugee resettlement program, to prioritize certain countries and certain uh, refugee populations over others because it wasn't just the humanitarian right thing to do, but also because we had a foreign policy interest in the region. So, you know, it's, it's you know, kind of, uh, you can't really say it's a legacy of the Cold War anymore, but still the, a foreign policy rationale informing the refugee admissions process uh, still continues to this day.
0: But even with the same international norms, Hamlin finds big differences in practices across the U.S., Canada, and Australia due to different levels of political insulation.
1: So the puzzle that I explored in that book was that there were these three countries who are so similar in so many ways. They are all liberal democracies with powerful courts. They're all immigration settlement countries, I mean, they're all interpreting the exact same legal definition of a refugee in their um, administrative procedures that they use to determine whether people should get refugee status. But on a lot of different countries that were sending people to the U.S., Canada, and Australia, they had wildly different acceptance rates for otherwise very similarly situated Asylum seekers, the the range, for example, for applicants from the People's Republic of China was tremendously varied um, with the Canada being consistently far more likely to grant people refugee status from that country. Um, and the US. somewhere in the middle and quite variable over time, and then Australia quite consistently hostile to those types of claims. So that was kind of the thing, the puzzle that led me to dig a little deeper into the administrative procedures that adjudicate these claims. And basically, the main takeaway is that I found that the level of insulation that the design of the administrative institutions allow from the exclusionary politics of immigration control um, was the factor that explained that variation. Countries with a, a higher level of insulation from these politics, for example, Canada, can withstand short-term waves of anti-immigrant sentiment, and their policies don't dramatically change or become more hostile to refugees due to those political whims or winds um, pushing on on the on the systems. Whereas in the U.S., there's a and and in Australia, a much higher level of susceptibility to anti-immigrant sentiment that can sort of infiltrate the administrative decision-making processes um, quite rapidly. And we're really seeing that in the U.S. right now.
0: <laughs> and now Canadian policy is shifting even more welcoming, along with its rhetoric, going in the opposite direction as the U.S.
1: Trudeau and Trump kind of couldn't be more different in the way that they've sort of staked out their positions on on these matters. And in practice, over the past three, three years, it hasn't just been a rhetorical difference. Canada has been far more generous to both refugees and asylum seekers than um, the U.S. has been. So this was most sort of starkly laid out last year when Canada actually resettled more refugees from overseas than the U.S. did for the first time. They resettled 28,000 people in, in 2018 compared to the U.S., uh, who resettled 23,000, which doesn't seem like a big difference, but you have to remember that Canada has one-tenth of the population <laughs> that the U.S. does. So for it to be resettling more people in raw numbers than the U.S. Is, is pretty striking. The other thing that's been hard for Trudeau is that, and this is kind of ironic, but in large part due to Trump, the Trump administration's crackdown on immigration of all kinds, Canada has been experiencing an unprecedented number of what's known as spontaneous arrivals, so people just coming across the US-Canada border to seek asylum. And that was pretty new for Canada to have people coming in that um at that scale, and it's above and beyond any people that Canada has pledged to resettle from overseas, and it's been really costly for Canada to process all of those people. So there's definitely been some backlash on Trudeau for the fact that he kind of laid out the welcome mat and I mean literally tweeted refugees are welcome in response to the the, to the Trump travel ban when it was first announced so I think even yesterday I just saw the the Toronto Sun which is a major Canadian newspaper had an editorial kind of excoriating him for how much his welcome attitude towards asylum seekers has been costing Canada. And um, there's an election on October 21st, so I guess we'll find out. Although it's pretty hard to separate out whether whether the backlash would be against Trudeau for that or many other scandals that he's (laughs) been caught up in recently.
0: Meanwhile, the U.S. is moving toward Australian policies.
1: The U.S. under Trump has been looking a lot more Australian lately. We seem to be watching and learning from Australia and adopting some of the practices that have come under the most criticism that Australia uses. So, for example, for years, Australia has been trying to avoid fulfilling its obligations under international law by taking asylum seekers that are apprehended at sea and diverting them to offshore processing centers and offshore meaning off of the territory of the country of Australia. So paying small island nations to house massive detention centers. And these detention centers are notoriously awful places where um, asylum seekers have routinely attempted suicide. And we don't know the, the sum total of what goes on in there because they're very hard to access. But but from what the media has learned, they're, they're terribly, terribly uh, depressing and um, unsafe places. And the U.S. seems to really be emulating this policy of offshore processing with what they're calling these new, quote unquote, safe third country agreements that the U.S. is negotiating with Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. The U.S. is basically using its might to pressure these smaller countries into housing asylum seekers that were trying to come to America. And by keeping these people in countries that are not adjacent to the United States and that are far less powerful than the United States, we're keeping them out of sight and out of mind. And to me, it's the same tactic that Australia has been using for quite some time. We basically just adopted it.
0: There are separate policies for refugees already cleared elsewhere and asylum seekers such as those at the southern border. But lately they've been conflated politically.
2: Under international law anyone fleeing persecution uh, on the basis of of certain criteria, uh, their, their political beliefs, their religion, their race and so on, qualifies for refugee protection status. But there are two separate streams for entering the United States. The first is the Refugee Admissions Program, the the subject of the report, and those refugees are screened overseas. So they usually have an initial hearing by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees to determine that their refugee status is, in fact, valid. And then a subset of those, usually the most vulnerable, people with health concerns or security concerns in refugee camps, are referred for resettlement and become candidates for resettlement. Um, when, when they're put into that pipeline, various U.S. agencies screen those individuals. They do multiple in-person interviews. They collect biometric information. They're, they do a health screening, run their information uh, uh, through international databases. They do a cultural orientation. Uh, the process takes as long as two years, sometimes more to get through the multiple layers of security checks and screens that that we put in place. Uh, There's additional screening for for Syrians, so it's even more stringent for Syrians. And only at that point would they be uh, eligible for entry. So it's a very rigorous process. And since 1980, we've admitted 3 million refugees, over 3 million refugees, through the resettlement program. And not a single one has been involved in a fatal terrorist attack in the United States. Now, that's not to say that the program has worked absolutely flawlessly. There have been some isolated incidents of potential involvement and plots, usually involving foreign financing uh, of uh, suspected terrorist groups. But those are relatively small. I mean, they're really a handful compared to the millions of people that we've successfully assisted and integrated in the United States. So it's a very rigorous program. Uh, The Cato Institute actually did a wonderful report that said something like, The risk of being an American being killed by a refugee is one in three and a half billion or something like that. It's an astronomically small number. So that's one uh, entry way. Now when the Syrian refugee crisis happened and people started seeing refugees flow into Europe through Greece and Italy and go into places like Germany. And yes, there were some disruptions uh, associated with that. That was a very different process. And that in some ways looks more like what's happening currently on the southern border. These are people that come to the United States or in the Syrian case, were coming to Germany, presenting themselves there and then having their applications uh, heard domestically through uh, you know, the adjudication process there. In the United States, immigration courts handle asylum. And only at that point are they uh, admitted to the United States. Now, while they're there and having their case being heard, people are afforded temporary residence in the U.S. So the Central American crisis is quite different in how people are coming to the United States to access our uh, refugee admissions and our humanitarian admissions programs from the overseas resettlement component. And oftentimes those two things are conflated. People are not exactly clear about how those are different, but they work in fundamentally different ways.
0: It's new for the Trump administration to explicitly link these policies, Sullivan says, but there is some trade-off.
2: If you actually look at the report that came out from the State Department, so the State Department every year issues a report on refugee resettlement priorities. And there's, you know, very clearly a justification there for reducing significantly reducing the cap on overseas refugee admissions. And part of the justification is, look what we're doing on the southern border in processing asylum claims. No administration in the past has done that. These were considered two separate categories and people admitted through the refugee through the asylum process would not count against numbers of refugees coming through the refugee process. So that is being done very explicitly You know, I'd I'd also like to say that that there is some trade-off between the two, between refugee admissions and asylum admissions. Under Obama, there was a small, but it it did exist, in-country refugee screening process in Central America. So we had offices in Central America, and when people had a claim uh, of persecution, either by the government or gangs and so on, they could be screened in-country and then referred through the refugee admissions process. Now, that door has been closed, so what do people do? People who are you know, desperate because their lives are at risk, they present themselves at the border. So there are trade-offs here. If you, if you reduce the refugee resettlement numbers, people that are desperate, that need to flee because their life is at risk, will come and present themselves at the border and be screened at the border.
0: Hamlin agrees that Trump is explicitly pitting refugee resettlement against asylum seekers at the border.
1: Our recent decision to cut drastically our refugee resettlement numbers is one of the many ways in which this administration has undermined U.S. international leadership. I guess what I would add to that point is that I think it's really important to understand what this administration is doing, pitting refugees and asylum seekers against each other in a zero-sum way. So I think it's we miss some of this context if we think about refugee resettlement as an international or foreign policy, and then asylum as a domestic immigration policy, because these two policies are being wrapped together in a really interesting So the State Department announced last week that the U.S. is only going to resettle 18,000 people next fiscal year, which is 5,000 lower than last year, and the lowest number in the history of the program. But what was really interesting to me in reading the announcement is that the State Department has been very clear that the reason they say they can't resettle more people waiting patiently abroad is that it is so expensive to address the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border and the US has never before linked refugee resettlement numbers to asylum processing costs in such an explicit way and this is it's a it's a new practice that again we seem to have taken from Australia who does the same thing they for every asylum visa they grant they reduce their resettlement numbers by 1 and they're very public about it and so of course it's in many ways absurd to say that asylum seekers at the US Mexico border who are being cast here as the undeserving ones are taking money away from needy refugees waiting patiently overseas. But it's a really brilliant political strategy because it pits advocates against each other, asylum advocates and refugee international advocates against each other. And also I think it does really interesting things with public opinion with with people who might really care about protecting refugees and this rhetoric actively sort of disassociates what's happening at our U.S. border from the idea of refugee protection and puts them in competition with one another.
0: The debates about spontaneous arrivals, however, are not new in form or content.
1: These debates that we're hearing today are very familiar and have been going on in this country for quite some time, debates around you know, who are these people? Why are they coming here? Are they really refugees deserving of our sympathy and help? Or are they really greedy economic migrants trying to take our jobs? Or or God forbid, are they terrorists trying to kill Americans? We've had these types of conversations about spontaneous arrivals at our borders for as long as we've had a refugee policy in the United States. Consistently, the U.S. government has cast people who don't serve our national interests as non-refugees and cast people who do serve our national interests as refugees and during the cold war for example you know we we took most anyone who wanted to come from Cuba and from the USSR and and labeled them refugees but people fleeing right-wing dictatorships in Central America or people fleeing Haiti were systematically refused in brutal ways so in terms of the conversations we're having, the types of people who are coming, and the, the general reaction to them in the public, it's really not that different than in the past. I would say the biggest difference is the degree to which the Trump administration is getting creative about how to say no.
0: But there has been real policy change under Trump, not just rhetoric.
1: The Remain in Mexico policy, which is forcing people to stay in mexico while their asylum claims are being processed the these safe third country agreements that i mentioned which are sort of trying to shunt people away from the border and make them wait somewhere else policies that are penalizing people for not waiting endlessly in mexico and trying to cross the border illegally and then once people are here these precedent setting decisions that i mentioned through which the, the Attorney General is narrowing the way in which we interpret the definition. So sort of at every level and every, at every turn, they're sort of clamping down in new ways that the U.S. had not previously used as a strategy.
0: Salehan focused on refugee resettlement. Refugee experts agree that it has been very successful for the U.S., leading to broad, favorable consensus.
2: This was a qualitative study, and this summer, summer of 2019, I interviewed 15 people that had some role in the U.S. refugee admissions program. So these were officials from Department of State, specifically Population, Refugees, and Migration, from Department of Homeland Security, the National Security Council. So it was a variety of agencies, and they also served under various administrations from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan, all the way through to Donald Trump. So we covered uh, every administration. So that includes both Republican appointees and Democrats, or people that worked under Democratic administrations. And there was uh, remarkable consistency in some of the answers. So I transcribed the interviews and coded them thematically according to, to major themes. And despite this diversity of views, there there was consistency on five basic points, and I'll just summarize them uh, very, very quickly because I'm sure we'll be getting into them. The first is that U.S. humanitarian leadership on refugee affairs really does matter for getting other nations to respond adequately to refugee crises, either through financial contributions or through resettlements uh, on their own. When the United States act, subsequently other countries act. Secondly, refugee policy has long been integral to a holistic foreign policy strategy. It has a number of foreign policy benefits beyond the the obvious humanitarian implications. It helps to bring stability to troubled regions in the world, it helps foster cooperation with allies, and it promotes a positive United States image in the world. The third main point was that uh, there was broad bipartisan support really up until the Trump administration, where Republican and Democratic administrations and members of Congress all agreed on the value of the program. But that really started to break down with the Syrian refugee crisis and fears about uh, potential terrorists abusing the program. But the fourth point that they all agreed on was that the the current vetting procedures are extremely robust, that uh, it's uh, very unlikely for a potential terrorist to try to use the refugee admissions process to to gain admission to the United States for malicious intent. And then finally, everyone agreed that the current deep cuts to refugee resettlement numbers are really not good policy um, and urged a return to historic standards.
0: Refugees were often associated with our military and foreign policy efforts.
2: A large share of the refugees that have come since 1980, since the passage of the Refugee Act, were from countries where the United States had an active military involvement. So the largest refugee flow that we received in the 1980s were Vietnamese. Many of them were people that worked with the United States uh, in South Vietnam and uh, were fleeing persecution because of that affiliation. We also uh, had refugee admissions programs for Iraqis and Afghans that worked with the United States in those contexts as interpreters, uh, as, as contractors, uh, people that, that worked alongside the US military. And kind of the bargain we struck with them was, you know, if you support our military efforts, uh, should you get in trouble for that cooperation, that the United States would uh, in some way bail you out, would, would assist you and your family in, in seeking safety. And if we fail to live up to those promises, it, it's very unlikely that in future engagements, people will want to cooperate with the United States. The second way that refugee policy benefits foreign policy is that mass disorderly refugee flows can be quite destabilizing to neighboring countries. If you think about the Syrian refugee crisis, it's generated 6 million refugees a quarter of Lebanon's population uh, are refugees. Turkey has been impacted in a very large way with a very substantial number of refugees, same with Jordan. And that has a economic impact on those countries, and it also affects social relations. So for example, in, in Lebanon, the sectarian makeup in Lebanon mirrors and resembles the sectarian makeup in Syria. So because of those ethnic and sectarian ties these refugee flows are often seen with alarm, can can potentially be destabilizing. So the United States has used the refugee program historically to ease the burden on those countries of first asylum. We did it with the Indo-Chinese exodus uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, again in the Balkans with the crises in Bosnia and Kosovo. Our bargain with the neighboring countries was that, you know, if they cooperate with humanitarian and military efforts, that we would take some of the, the refugees and resettle them here domestically in order to avert further regional destabilization. And the third one that's, that's you know, maybe less tangible is that refugee policy and having a welcoming, open society cast the United States in a positive light among international audiences. And there was a strong agreement from the experts about this as well, is that when the United States is seen as a good actor, on the international stage, that's incredibly important as a tool of, you know, some would say soft power in generating goodwill and fostering cooperation with other things that we care about as well. And there used to be bipartisan support for resettlement until 2015. There was very substantial bipartisan support for the refugee admissions program. Actually, the president that admitted the most refugees during his term in office was Ronald Reagan, Republican followed by George W. Bush. And numbers since then have stayed relatively consistent. The historical average has been somewhere between seventy and 90,000, more or less, depending on international circumstances. And Congress was largely on board with whatever numbers the State Department and the administration would put forth. Now, that did change with, and it wasn't Trump. I won't put the the blame entirely on Trump because in 2015, what you saw was a series, a number of governors, nearly all Republicans, save one, expressed concern about Syrian refugees coming to the United States. So my governor, Governor Abbott in Texas, was one of many governors who signed a letter saying that refugees would not be welcome in their state, uh, refugees from Syria in particular. And they were responding to the November 2015 Paris terrorist attacks, and you know there was le- legitimate public concern about who these people were. I mean, we were you know afraid of, of of ISIS and bad actors trying to enter the West through through this procedure. Although you know many of those claims were were overblown. You know I think there was an opportunity there to inform the public about the the security and safety of the program. But anyway, in 2015, you started to see this unraveling of this bipartisan consensus. And then candidate Trump during his election campaign made refugee admissions a campaign issue. And we'd never really seen that before in the United States and explicitly said that we should bar Muslim migrants and refugees uh, from coming to the United States. And I think, you know, he said, until we can figure out what the hell is going on. So he kind of played into the public fear at the time, instead of trying to tamp it down. And then it's become a a partisan issue. Now, contrast that with George H.W. Bush. So in 2001, people who were in the United States on various sorts of visas launched the attacks against the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And there was, the microscope was on all forms of immigration to the United States, although very quickly, after we put in additional screening procedures and reformed our immigration system almost in its entirety, the numbers came back to the historic norm and President Bush made it very explicit that the war on terrorism was not a war on Islam, that Islam was not the problem, it was radical actors acting in the name of Islam. So even though there were security concerns at that time, we quickly got back to the historic norm. Now Trump has not done that, in my view and in the view of a number of the the experts that i that i talked to you know this is part and parcel of an overall administration goal of reducing the number of migrants across the board coming to the united states so that includes the border wall daca obviously uh, immigration refugee and asylum admissions detention on the border Uh, in the hopes of deterring potential migrants. So you see a number of policies, and the refugee admissions program is just one of them, in which the administration has very robustly and aggressively attacked all forms of immigration to the United States. And among his base, that's, that's popular. There's long been in the United States an undercurrent or a segment of the population that is uncomfortable with demographic change. And they've responded to Trump very robustly, and they support these crackdowns on on all forms of immigration.
0: The end of bipartisan consensus came when refugees started being part of the general immigration discussion.
2: The bipartisan consensus, I won't say, has completely broken down because there are strong Republican voices in the House and the Senate that continue to defend the refugee program. We've heard from military leaders including general retired general mattis who left the state department who have defended the refugee admissions program now immigration has always had a there's always been a partisan fight with respect to immigration in general but the refugee resettlement program was protected from that debate in congress republican administrations democratic administrations floated their refugee numbers and you know there were hearings in congress and you know Particular members of Congress might have made race concern about why are you doing why aren't you doing more for this group versus that group. But by and large, the the program had support and was outside of the debate about the immigration system overall. That's long been contentious, but the refugee program was not. My fear is that in the future if a democratic administration or a future republican administration should try to bring the numbers back in line with the historic norm that it'll again be the subject of a partisan fight where it never had been before
0: but hamlin says it's not easy to separate people based on the reasons they migrate
1: the conventional wisdom is that there's two distinct types of people who cross borders refugees and migrants and that refugees are the deserving and vulnerable Uh, people who are forced to flee against their will, and that migrants are people who are self-serving, voluntarily choosing to cross borders for their own economic gain. And that binary way of thinking about things assumes that people crossing borders can be sorted out correctly by the processes that governments establish to screen people. It assumes that the people who are assigned refugee status by those processes that states establish are the neediest people. And... There's lots of reasons to doubt those assumptions. There's all kinds of ethnographic work that has shown how the motivations of people who leave their homes, regardless of where they're coming from, look pretty similar. Um, They're multiple and they're complicated, and at the very least, they fall on a continuum between forced and voluntary, not a binary, with an awful lot of people in the middle who leave their homes because they don't believe they have other options so the reasons that they leave could be a combination of political persecution, economic strife, to add a new wrinkle, you know, climate change is making these distinctions even more complicated than than ever. I think there's also no reason to be confident that border control measures that states put in place and the procedures that states use to screen people out, identify the neediest and most deserving people for protection and I think it's really important for us to use what we've learned as scholars of migration to sort of expose these assumptions and be more honest about what is actually happening in these border zones.
0: And there's a risk of playing into the trap of narrowing the refugee category as far as possible.
1: A lot of advocates are going to say that. They're going to say, you know, we have a politics right now that is only open to protecting a few people. And if we aren't very careful to maintain this very narrow band of protection for some, we risk, you know, by admitting, if you admit that an emperor has no clothes, then, then maybe we, we risk losing the ability to protect anyone at all. I think we are already very, very close to that point, would be one of my responses. <laughs> Part of the sort of sleight of hand that the Trump administration is ga- engaging in is to insist that they're very, very keen on protecting refugees. And then sort of at all turns, the refugees are sort of not the ones that are actually asking for protection right now. The refugees are somewhere else waiting patiently and we can't help them because we're having to spend so much money and time on these other economic migrants pretending to be refugees. So I think that we um, activists sometimes play into that trap by talking about how important it is to protect refugees and not migrants. Um, Because one of the other underlying assumptions of this binary way of thinking is that refugees are really rare. And it it allows us to imagine that most of the border control measures that are put in place in the world are truly doing a good job of screening out um, non-genuine or non-deserving people. And I don't, I don't personally have any confidence that that's what they're doing.
0: But Salehan says it's dangerous to conflate economic and political motivations, and countries can adjudicate.
2: There has been historically a distinction between economic migrants and political refugees. And, you know, I do agree that there is somewhat of a spectrum. You know, there's let's say, an H-1B high-skilled worker who wants to come to the United States and has a job opportunity, well, you know, that's very clearly an economic opportunity for that individual. And then there's someone in which, you know, the secret police comes to their house and threatens to kill them. And within 48 hours, they've escaped the country, right? So so there are... uh, people that maybe have a mix of, of these things, but you know, I, I think it's very dangerous to, to try to conflate them and, and try to say, well, is this person moving for mostly economic reasons or mostly political reasons? and then trying to adjudicate, you know, who has a a legitimate refugee claim. Refugees have often, and and asylum seekers, have often been accused of being bogus refugees, people that are just coming for economic opportunity and are manufacturing uh, claims of persecution in order to to gain admissions but there are standards of evidence in u.s courts for establishing well what is a well-founded fear of persecution what categories of individuals what types of persecution applies so there is a body of law there and we do have precedent for uh, adjudicating these cases and i think we've done a a fairly good job of of trying to uh, distinguish between the two now, that said, you know, there, there are things that are not exactly clear, right? So if a government is denying economic opportunities to, say, you know, an ethnic group that's seen as a rival, denying them social services like education and schooling, discriminating against them for, for public service jobs, and also harassing political leaders and harassing its opponents, well, you know, those economic policies are persecutory, so yes, there, there is a mix uh, of, of motives potentially, but I think we need to be clear about why refugees are coming. They're primarily coming because they are fleeing personal, often physical harm, if not death, if they should return to their country. And we shouldn't try to question or, or murky their, their motivations by saying, well, you also had an economic motive too, so therefore you're not a legitimate refugee you know, I think, you know, a reasonable person would say that someone who fears for their life and their safety and and that of their family does have a right not to be returned to a place where they're in danger.
0: The U.S. change is part of an international backlash, he says.
2: You have seen a a reversal in many countries of relatively generous refugee and asylum admissions. And I won't go into detail, but, you know, you've seen this trend, you know, and, and again, it didn't start with Trump. It goes back you know, at least a decade, if not more, where voters in Australia and France, S- Sweden, Denmark, Germany are responding to to migration and demographic change very forcefully. It's, it's led to the rise of populist parties, some would call them far-right parties, and they've had significant electoral success. And that's put pressure on mainstream politicians, including, for example, Angela Merkel to uh, reform asylum and refugee admissions in a more restrictionist direction. But
0: Syrian asylum seekers caused a backlash in Europe because they were unknown, Hamlin says, not like the U.S. resettlement program.
1: There's been a major backlash in Europe to the idea of being welcoming to, to spontaneous arrivals. I, I do think it's important to be clear about the distinction. So the people who were coming into Europe in 2015, 2016, they were referred to it by some people in the media as Syrian refugees, but they had not actually been subjected to the process of refugee status determination, the individualized processing that people being resettled from that same region are subjected to before they come to the U.S. or Canada. So when, when Trudeau said uh, and Obama said that they were going to resettle large numbers of Syrian refugees, these are people who are very, very thoroughly vetted, to use Trump's phrase, who had gone through many background checks and security checks before they were allowed to, to the U.S. and Canada. That stands in quite sharp contrast to the people who came into Europe before being processed. And I think that it's an important distinction because when, when a lot of Republican governors in the U.S. announced that they weren't going to be willing to host Syrian refugees in their state, in the aftermath of the Paris bombings, they were talking about how it was Syrian refugees who carried out the Paris bombings. But that's actually an inaccurate way of talking about who those people were. And no one coming to the US from Syria is coming directly without this really thorough screening. So it's a slightly different thing. I think when there's political backlash, and we even have seen it with Trudeau, it's not so much about choosing to resettle Syrians that he's suffered for. It's people pouring across the border who are more unknown. And that's the thing that seems to cause people a lot of anxiety all over the world.
0: She reminds us that most displaced people stay close by in the Global South.
1: The vast majority of displaced people in the world remain either trapped within their home countries or much closer to home within their regions, often in large refugee camps that are in the Global South. So when people in the Global North think about masses or hordes of people invading their countries, they they should understand that the numbers are really tiny compared to what countries like Pakistan, Lebanon, Jordan, Kenya, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Sudan are hosting people in the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions. While it's not directly on the topic of this interview, it's just important to me when we end up spending a long time talking about the reaction of liberal democracies to arrivals to emphasize that the vast majority of the burden, if you want to call it that, or the re- responsibility for assisting displaced people is not taken on by Global North countries. It's taken on and, and done in the South.
0: Salehan says we've long feared the current crop of immigrants in the U.S., even though we see immigration as a long story of success.
2: If you look at the history of immigration to the United States, we have long had two narratives about immigration that kind of operate simultaneously. The first is that we're a country founded by immigrants. We're a country that was multicultural from the, from the beginning. We had, obviously, people from Great Britain, from Scotland and Ireland, from Italy, from Poland, China, and elsewhere, come to the United States and strengthen the fabric uh, of our country. And in parallel to that has been a unease uh, about current immigrants a sense that the immigrants that are coming now are not like the immigrants that were were coming before. And time and time again in our history, we've seen that borne out as as not being true. I mean, there was concern in the 19th century about Catholic immigration, specifically the Irish. There was concern about integration of Chinese, of Eastern and Southern Europeans. And now the attention has been turned to migrants from Latin America and the Middle East, Although I'm I'm confident that with future generations the United States will be welcoming to those populations as well and, and they'll become every bit as American as anyone else who, who've been here for, for generations. But we've always kind of had this this tension between these two conflicting views of, of immigration to the United States. Where we did have consensus is that, you know, at least for the, the subset of migrants that are really fleeing harm, that are fleeing danger to themselves and to their families, that there's a moral obligation to take the empathetic approach.
0: Hamlin says Democrats are shifting pro-refugee as part of their general moves on immigration, but she sees some risks.
2: I do
1: think we're seeing this issue become a lot less cross-cutting than we had previously understood it to be. I want to be very clear that I don't think Obama did anything even remotely close to what the Trump administration is doing to make it difficult to seek asylum. And the Obama administration resettled refugees in much, much greater numbers, five times the numbers that the Trump administration is talking about. So I think the Obama did it too line is really overblown. But I also don't think that the Obama Biden approach to immigration will fly with the Democratic Party electorate anymore. It seems like the idea that Obama was the quote, unquote, deporter in chief has really taken hold amongst some portion of the left. And I agree with you that the candidates lining up to run against Trump are all seemingly trying to distinguish themselves from Obama on this point. So it'll be really interesting to see where they take this because it's a really tricky issue for them to parse when they cannot be seen as being in favor of open borders, which is what Republicans like to accuse Democrats of. So they have to be really careful to talk about not open borders, but safe borders, humane borders, (laughs) investing in real immigration courts, not kangaroo courts. But this stuff gets into the weeds. And I'm, I'm not super clear on how well these candidates are doing, making those types of distinctions. On your question about whether a Democratic president could undo his legacy, I think a really motivated Democratic president could undo a lot of the most egregious stuff that's been really harmful to especially families and young children. But it's, it's just a matter of like how aggressive or how upfront new administration wants to be on this issue.
0: There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Rebecca Hamlin and Idian Salahin for joining me. Please check out Let Me Be a Refugee and The Strategic Case for Refugee Resettlement and then listen in next time.